0: Hello, this is Aaron. I posted my interview with Dwight Gibson in the newsletter and got some feedback from people that they'd never heard that in the podcast before. And that's because when I started my YouTube channel, it was separate from the podcast and I didn't put my YouTube interviews into the podcast feed. So over the coming months, I will occasionally roll out one of those old episodes that was never on the podcast so that you can listen to it. And this week... I'm going to do Dwight Gibson's interview on exploration because it's very related to my book, Life in the Negative World, where I talk about exploration and Gibson. It's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the show. I'm pleased to be joined today by my good friend, Dwight Gibson, who is not only a friend of mine, he also has a very interesting profession in exploration. He's the chief explorer of the exploration group, something we'll talk about later. So, Dwight, thanks for agreeing to do this.
1: Aaron, it's great to be with you this afternoon.
0: You know, when we met back, uh, I don't know when it was. It was probably like in the 2010-11 timeframe, maybe something like that. When I was living in Chicago, it's been a long time. And uh, I really just feel like I always hit it off with you. We have great conversations when we're just just like hanging out because you have so many great perspectives on the world. And helping to sort through, um, you know, at that time, I was going through like a really crazy period in my life. And you've gone through some of yours and just <laughs> trying to help put some perspective on it was very useful.
1: Yeah, and we so, I think we took turns being crazy uh, yeah. these seasons of life, I think. Yeah.
0: And, and, and so I, th- I thought this uh, this idea of exploration, which I think is a little it's hard to explain, I think, because we don't think that way anymore. Uh, which I think is one of your points is is that we used to have this tech, this domain of exploration, you know, when people were exploring, you know, new continents, exploring, trying to get to the South pole, the Lewis and Clark expedition where people were really going off and trying to chart unknown areas. And yet um, we see uh, today, we don't really do that. So can you just, uh, can you just tell it, you know, how do you define exploration, and how does that differ from what we do today?
1: Yeah, those, those are great questions and, and, and great preparation for this. I think actually wanna, I actually want to go back about 100 years ago, 120 years ago. Prior to, let's say, 1890, 1900, that period of time, the people that were alive knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that there's a lot that they didn't know, Okay. And at that point, it was about the world, you know, they, the, the North Pole, the South Pole. There were mountains that hadn't been climbed, etc. Come around 1890 to the year, to, uh, you know, 1900, there was increasingly this sense that we kind of knew what was going on. Now, we really didn't, but we had a sense of it. So uh, the, the, the Royal Geographic Society had made a list, and this is from a geographic standpoint, of kind of all the things let, yet to be found. And they just started, they were clicking them off. And as that list was getting lower, it's like, like we know what's going on. Uh, there were several other things that kind of came together, the Industrial Revolution, where we increasingly moved from things made by hand to things that we were replicating. Uh, and, and you put all that together, and I just I found it was kind of the move from this uh, the age of we don't know, and we're exploring to the age that we do know or that we think we know. And and it's think- interesting
0: you say that because it was 1905, wasn't it, that Einstein published all of his famous papers? You know, we were making all these amazing scientific discoveries
1: Yeah, right yeah. in there. Yeah, and we were doing all this stuff. But in this, increasingly, though, it was like somehow if we can figure it out, we know. If we can mm-hmm. figure it out, we can we can kind of make this thing happen. And, and so I, you put all that together, and I think we moved from a world of kind of what if to what could be to – this is the way it is. You know, we were in, in, in one of the key factors, Aaron, in what you're saying is about control. We had a sense that we controlled prior to that point. We didn't think we, we, we knew or we could admit. And I've come to the realization recently that humility is a critical part of exploration. I've always said curiosity is necessary to be a great explorer, but I've actually come to a deeper understanding that humility precedes curiosity. And there has to be cu- the humility to say, I don't know which in today's world is actually hard for a lot of people to admit.
0: Hmm. So how do they approach these unknowns in that era?
1: Well, there there were, there were explorers. I mean, so you had the geographic explorers. People were studying. I think, you know, in a sense, science was real science and that they were, they, there was a mystery to it all. And so how they approached it was observation. I, I've got one of the great books I've got over here on my shelf is called What to Observe. It was written by a guy by the name of J.R. Jackson, and they put editions of it out throughout the 1800s. And it was a guide for people to observe. And it was how to see things. And I think in many ways, uh, we, have, we have stopped seeing things. And again, anything you say in this space, Aaron, you can almost, uh, you know, can be an overstatement. But I think back in the day, people were, were curious. They were observing. They were learning how to observe. Today, we tend to look at things and say, this is the way it is. This is the way it is.
0: You know, you always see like excerpts from people's diaries, from the 1800s, and they're talking about all these different plants and animals that they're seeing all these different birds. And it's not so much that they've never seen them before. These are not even famous people. These are just like random people telling you in great observational detail, um, you know, what's going on in the world in a way that if we were to have a, a diary today, it would be almost exclusively kind of our interior monologue of how we're feeling about things, very little about what we're seeing. Well,
1: yeah. uh, you know, that's that's totally, I mean, we could go off into a whole nother uh, conversation about kind of the way the world is seen, but I, I actually was just recently came across some reading and they picked up on exactly what you said, that at one point in time, if you said someone, you know, are you successful? And the response is, Yes, I provide for my family. I've got a good job. I've got a roof over my head. Uh, and it's it's about thinking about others. And it's observing the world around us and interacting with the world around us. When you ask a person, are you successful today? It tends to be, I feel good. I think I get good things at my work. It, it's all about me. It's not what I do in relation to the rest of the world. And I think that plays into what you're talking about with exploration here, is that exploration is, is recognizing that in a sense, you're a part of the world, but you are not the world. And in many ways, that's uh, that's a philosophical change that I think has happened. And in, in some ways, I, I think in the past people were more open to exploration than they are today uh, because of this humility to admit that we don't know. Today, I want I have to have this success is perceived as I control. And to I have, me, I have a
0: work plan of how I'm going to get there.
1: Yeah, I got, I, yeah, not only do I control, I have a plan, in and in a year from now, I'm going to get there. And I think that's actually been, again, honestly, that's one of the realities of today. I mean, you look back over the last year or so. Chaos, unknown, rapid change, unparalleled times. You know, you call it what you want. Um, when we don't know what to do, <laughs> we don't know what to do. <laughs>
0: I do think that's that, you know, a, a lot of people have in recent years made reference to that. Um, uh, when Prophecy Fails, is that the name of the book? It's about uh, it's about essentially these uh, doomsday cults and what happens when you've predicted the end of the world on a particular date and it doesn't happen. And like, um, you know, apparently like half the people keep staying with the group. They sort of double down on it. Yeah. But uh, that that sort of. Um, Uh, My one friend calls it the apocalypse that didn't come, has informed so much. It's like, and it's not just an apocalypse in the term of, uh, in the sense of, you know, disaster, but this idea that we have this vision of how the world is going to play out in the future. Hillary Clinton is going to be elected president in 2017, right? The idea that it's January 1, 2015, and like, you know, not that, you know, not two years later, Right, we're getting ready to inaugurate Donald Trump as president. It seems to violate every expectation that people have about the future. We now, I think, now that we do have this sense that we control the future, when things happen that are outside of our control, we, I think, you don't handle it well. I think these, you know, these more primitive societies, we want to call them that. Understood that like stuff's going to happen, we just don't know about it. Like there's going to be a storm, we don't know the storm is coming, right? The tornado just hit you, the hurricane just arrived. You know, we didn't have these like ten day extended forecasts. We didn't have all this stuff, and all of a sudden it's like if some little thing that we've predicted doesn't happen, it's like a major catastrophe. It's almost like something's wrong with the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, I find the verse from scripture. I mean, there's many verses that I find from the Bible that are really intrigue me the one that always i come back to is the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge and in that verse is the recognition is that there is something beyond me and there in a sense it's a relationship beyond me most people want to live today like me is the beginning of knowledge or I am Mm -hmm. the beginning of knowledge and Mm -hmm. it's the fear of the Lord. There is some, there's God beyond me. It's the beginning of knowledge. And, you know, as you're, as you're talking here, I find myself realizing that, for instance, over these last, this last year of COVID, the people that I know friends and just people that I observed, the people that were most about having that plan, controlling their life, needing to be on top of every detail, those people went crazy this last year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just went crazy because, you know, using your doomsday kind of cult uh, analogy, um, you know, a year ago, they doubled down. And then three months later, they were doubling down again. And I know in one situation, uh, the, the friend of mine just kind of like, I don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do. And they, I could see they kind of gave up because they no longer could control. And I, my response was, this is actually really good. I mean, this yeah. is painful what's going on, but the recognition that we don't know is actually really, free. it's not, it's not hindering, it's freeing.
0: Yeah. You know, I just got an interesting comment here from uh, David. He says, I wonder if our ability to observe has been degraded by technology, photography, video, instrumentation. We no longer need to practice observation.
1: You know, there's, there's that. Thank you, Dave. That's a great question, a great comment, and, he, and he's exactly right. You look back at, for instance, memorization. You know, people needed to memorize facts or figures or know things. And today, you know, you know, literally, if, if my and I'm I'm sitting right here. If my if my mobile phone breaks down, I've got a problem. It, it hit me a while back when I realized I didn't know my wife's phone number. <laughs> I had no don't, idea. Don't ask me my wife's
0: phone number. That's a problem. Well,
1: well, I literally, I made it a mind to memorize my wife's phone number. And I, I, I memorized my wife's. I memorized my mother's phone number. Now, if you ask me what, for instance, my kid's phone number is, no idea. And so I think I think Dave is right, is that there is the, the technology, whether it's you know these tools, um, we, we capture something, but we're, we capture it, but we're not thinking about it.
0: Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think about the phone is a great example, because I know I have numbers memorized from before I had smartphones, but anybody I met after the smartphone came along. I don't know their telephone number. And, um, you know, uh, his comment also reminds me of a column that uh, Bob Green, the Chicago Tribune columnist wrote many, many years ago. And this is a, a paraphrase of a fair paraphrase, perhaps. But he's like, the camcorder has destroyed family history. Yeah. Whereas it used to be you'd have a a family reunion and uncle Bob would do something funny. And then every year, year after year, people would tell the story about when Bob did something funny and it just kind of grew with the telling and everybody it became this legend. Well now we have the tape of it. You pull out the tape, you realize oh, it actually wasn't very funny after all. <laughs> you know, it's like you know there's a lot of you know there's a lot that's um you know that's uh you can't you've we've we've lost Um, you know, through that. And I think there is. And, you know, so much, that period of time that you highlighted, so much was happening. Um, You know, I didn't make the connection to the physics papers until then, but I definitely thought about 1890 was the conventional date for the closing of the frontier, Um, you know, in America, uh, for example. It was really between 1870 and, say, 1905, 1910, that we had the first large companies, you know, that were there. You know, prior to 1870, almost every company was fewer than 100 employees. It was a capitalist society, but it was mostly smaller proprietorships. During the late 19th century, we converted into large-scale corporations. The railroads were the very first corporations as we know them. And to run a corporation, you have to have a different bureaucratic style of management. Uh, James Burnham wrote a famous book in, I think, 42 called The Bureaucratization of the World, that that was Bruno Rizzi, who was a Marxist guy from there. Sorry, he wrote The Managerial Revolution. Uh, Bruno Rizzi wrote another great book, but it's more about the Soviet Union. Um, So I think there was a lot going on there that, and I draw this distinction between pre-industrial and industrial, but there's something about society, say circa 1830, when Tocqueville's writing about America, and society circa 1920, when we're living in large cities with large companies Electric lights, telephones, indoor plumbing—you know—scientific uh, discoveries advancing—you know—steamships, you know—airplanes you know, now invented. Uh, World War One has even happened. We've had this, like, you know, mechanized war, and it's just a—it's compl- so radically different. We can't wrap our heads around what it's like.
1: Yeah, let me let me comment on that. I, you know, I think I think you're you're really you're onto something there. That was was a fundamental change in society. Uh, you know, when I look at um, kind of the the growth of the industrial kind of the revolution and all that happened, that was you know through the 1800s uh, and into the 1900s. In the um, when you had those small businesses, uh, whether it was a carpenter or a blacksmith or you name it you know, I'd say everything was being created was one at a time. You know, like, you know, the, the, the glass that I have with water in here it would have been hand blown mm-hmm. one at a time. And everyone that was made was an opportunity for a discovery because it was made one at a time. With the industrial revolution, suddenly you were making a thousand glasses an hour, mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly the same. They were being punched out of a machine. And this, this, kind of the modern was the uniformity, and what I've observed is that when it was being made one at a time, we lived in a what-if world. Every time something was made, it was a new opportunity for discovery, and with that growth that you're talking about, for instance, you're talking about the railroad. That was one of the the big movements that led to the, the synchronization of time, so you know, you got Eastern Standard Time, Mountain Standard Time, et cetera, around the world. It was the railroads needed to run on time. And so they consequently had to have these clocks kind of synchronized by a standard way. It's the same with um, uh, from manufacturing nuts, bolts, screws, et cetera. They needed to have a certain uniformity. And, and I've read some really fascinating materials on um, regulations and and uh, kind of the, the, um, the synchronization of all these different things so that there were certain standards. And so what we did is we moved from this what if world to a this is the way it is world. And with the size of the corporation, the the bureaucracy, et cetera, that you're talking about, it allowed us to move to a scale that in a sense, and I think it's just a very natural movement as you were talking, as we move from kind of creating one at a time to this is the way it is, this is the way it runs. And and by the natural, uh, by, you know, kind of natural coming out of that, I think it, it leads away from exploration where you're creating to management. And you know the premise that I would say, Aaron, is that in order to manage well, you actually have to have explored well first and and I again it's just as we're talking here, I think in another time in another era, at an individual level or at an individual family level, exploration was just much more of a natural part of your day to day life than it may be today
0: yeah, so you know we went through this phase, I think in the uh Po- the cla- after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall, we we hit this end of history moment, uh, as as they say, uh, and I think the, the argument of the end of history in Fukuyama's article and book was that we have essentially reached. We do know, ideologically, if we want to call it from, from not necessarily that every place will be this kind of liberal democracy, but you know, this is the 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 age of ideology has sort of uh, come to an end, and we've now arrived yeah. at. at at this state. And we we had this world that seemed to, you know, have this set of rules and ways, and it it worked, you know, in a sense. And and now I think we're getting into, you know, I don't know if it's ideological history per se, but it seems like history is happening again. There's a lot of things happening that seemed outside the world we thought we understood say in the late nineties or that. And so being able to, to, to recapture, I think some of these exploration concepts, is very important. So in terms of today, I, I'm, I'm, I'm facing an unknown future here, post-COVID, world. we don't know what's going to happen. How do I or, you know, an institution or a company go about exploring today? You know, I guess, what do you do uh, as an explorer?
1: Well, yeah, good question. I think, first of all, it's to recognize that there is, there is a way to explore. I think most people think, how do I manage, how do my, way, manage my way forward? How do we go forward? And, and what, what I would say from an exploration standpoint, uh, managing is about replicating. It, it's about control. It's about efficiency. It's about you know, something that was done before and, and doing it again, replicating it, doing it again. And, and that's actually really good. And most of what we do is in that sphere. I think with well, the environment that we have today and the reality of the world today is that we actually have to explore. And there's actually a, a methodology. There's a way of exploration uh, that we discovered. I, you know, A number of years ago, when I started stepping into this space, you know, I'd, always, I'd always known I kind of did things a little differently. You know, I'd gone to Cornell, did executive training there. I'd been involved in various you know, kind of training things in, in, early in my career. And while I, I did it okay, I was never great at management. But the organizations that I was in always said, Dwight, you make things happen. You you, you do something here, and it's differently. Long and short of it, over time, I I came to the realization, uh, and and actually, it's funny. Aaron, as you know, I'm a book guy. So I got constantly, I'm I'm reading books. When I was in first grade, my mother gave me this book, Story of Thomas Alva Edison. I, I grabbed it off my bookshelf today. This was like, well, what did it cost? cost, I think it was 45 cents. Yeah, 45 cents. My mother bought this for me in first grade, and I wore it out. I wore the binding out, so she bought me a second one, and I have still got both of them. Um, I'm not a hoarder. I just keep the things that are important. Let's put it that way. But anyway, Edison what I saw was this guy that was experimenting. And, and without, I, I, I kind of just took this into my life. So long and short of it, what I realized, and I don't know if you want to pop up the one of the slides that I sent there, but there was, there's, a, there's a core step of exploration. And it's, it's pondering, landmarking, and orienteering. Those, th- that core step is something that every explorer always does. And what I had found is that when it comes to doing uh, exploration work, every explorer I ever studied, ever I looked at, always did this. And you see this right in the center of this. And Pondering, landmarking, and orienteering. Pondering is the observing. It's what's going on, trying to understand what's happening. Uh, Landmarking are the insights that come out of your pondering, and orienteering are creating new value chains based on the insights that have gained. And so that's the heart and whether it's Thomas Edison, whether it's Lewis and Clark, whether it's Magellan, you name an explorer, you name a pioneer. Uh, Peter Drucker, knowing greatly in the world of management, I contend that he was an explorer in the world of management. Entrepreneurs are explorers in the world of business. They're the people that look at it a new way. That's the heart, pondering, landmarking and orienteering. Before that, you've got to expect. And then in, in kind of coming back to your question for today, what are you looking for? Post-pandemic, what's out there? Do you want to start a new business? Do you want to start a new career? Do you want to move to a new place? What is out there that you're looking to get to and go to that's beyond where you are now? And then the crossroads. The crossroads, every explorer made a crossroads decision. I'm going to change the status quo. I'm going to spend money. I'm going to spend time. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to move. Expecting and crossroads set us up to explore and then the, the last steps, realization and evaluation, are once you've hit that destination, the realization is the flag in the North Pole. Uh, the evaluation is to say, okay, now that we've learned this, where do we go from here? Um, thank you. Thanks for showing that, Aaron. That's, that is, that's the essence of exploration. And in, in looking at that, when you say, what can I do today? Ponder. What am I seeing? What's going on? Out of that, what are the new insights? What are the landmarks? And then start putting those together and see if they lead you in a new direction. That's the opportunity for today. And here's what I learned, Aaron. Each one of us have an opportunity to be an explorer. Each one of us can create. Each one of us can innovate. You know, I used to think exploration is only in the realm of great people. Oh, I could never do what Thomas Edison did. Oh, I could never do what Lewis and Clark did. Oh, I could never be an Einstein. The reality is they all followed this same path. They pondered. Identified new landmarks, and then they went forward based on it. Aaron, you can do that. Mm. I can do that. Anybody who's listening today, it, it's teachable, it's replicatable, it's scalable. And that I that was the great insight that I had because it's not just the great people that can do that. I would make the case, these are simple ordinary people. In Edison, he he went to school less than a year of his life. But the guy had the ability to do you know great things. And you look at <laughs> Even some of the, you know, kind of the great entrepreneurs today, every one of them dropped out of college, you know, kind of thing, mm. or didn't go in the first place. But they followed this same path.
0: You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I, when I hear about um, exploration and the unknowns, it, you know, I was pondering that, and I divided it into two basic categories of things that I see people we'll talk about. One is I know where I want to go but there's no path to get there. Right. How do I do it? Yeah. Uh, but I, I have an idea of what the end goal is. If you want to call it that this could be like starting the company or the career. The, I, I think the, the second one is, I don't know where I am. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going. I'm not sure where I want to go. I'm just stuck in this, in this space. And maybe we can talk about both of those, but the first one is somewhat amenable to the startup. It's like the startup model. Yeah. And I know I, 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 hearing you talk about exploration, you know, for a very long time before the book came out, but I thought immediately of Peter Thiel's from zero to one. And he makes this big distinction between once you've got one, you mass produce the copies, you move into this realm of management. But when you're trying to get from zero to one, when you have nothing, and you're trying to create the first of something, that's a very different methodology. So he sort of, he sort of, uh, Uh, swagger jacked you there maybe a little bit, but, uh, you know, how do you think that this like compares to the concept of zero to one in the startup world?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think there's a lot of similarity and I, and I I remember this is for me personally as an explorer. I, I, I had started seeing this, this process, this methodology as I was reading various books, you know, 10, 15, 10, 15 years ago. And as I was reading these books, I said, this, guy, this, this person is doing this. This person is doing this. And they were all following the same thing. And I ended up discovering that there was a course on exploration taught at the Royal Geographic Society in London. It had been taught for years, and then it was stopped like 70, 80 years ago. And I had an opportunity to go to London, and I specifically arranged an appointment at the archives, the Royal Geographic Society, right across from Hyde Park in London, and I said, I want any information about this class. And, and Aaron, what I was looking for was the was the class book. I figured I'm going to go there and I'm going to find the course book. It's just going to got this little plan, and I'm going to copy it down. And I remember, still remember the day. It was a, it was a summer day. It was a beautiful afternoon. I get there, sky was blue. I walk in, all this anticipation. All the materials are laid out for me. I'm studying it. I'm looking at it. And but I didn't find I didn't find the course book. I didn't mm. find I didn't find the the secret sauce. And, uh, but I, I, you know, I, I saw they taught people how to use or figure uh, longitude, latitude, barometric pressure, how to survive outdoors, You're kind of this book, what to observe, told you how to observe all this stuff. But no methodology that I had seen was not there. So I get down at the afternoon, the archivist says to me. Mr. Gibson, did you, uh, you know, were you successful in your research this afternoon? I said, well, partially. I, I didn't find everything I wanted. And I said, here's what I'm looking for. There's this methodology of exploration. I've seen it. I named some of the different explorers. I said, they all follow this methodology. And I thought there would be a course book here that would teach that because it's, it's so obvious that they do it. And I, I say this to the archivist, Erin, and she looks at me she goes, hmm. You know, I don't think anyone's ever studied that before. Hmm. And I remember then I, I got, to, I, I'm sure if there had been a mirror, I had this kind of crazy look on my face and I said, oh. And I remember, I still remember to this day walking across Hyde Park and I said, this is my exploration. I need, I need to codify these steps that I have seen Find the vocabulary, find the words, and that's what I just presented. And so Mm -hmm. when you say, what's the comparison? A lot of similarity. I would make, a couple of years ago, I was was interviewing a a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who sold his company to Google, and I was talking through these things to learn about what he had did. And we were done talking. He says, hey, can I ask you a few questions now? Tell me about the methodology. Tell me about this process. Help me understand it. Mm -hmm. I explained it to him, and he said, that's exactly what I did. He said, mm-hmm. i had all kinds of people say, what did you do? And I couldn't tell them. And here's my hunch, Aaron. Most explorers, they do this intuitively. They do it naturally. It's not been codified. They're not documenting because they're excited about doing the exploration. Mm-hmm. It is such a natural step that it's kind of like right in front of our faces, but we don't see it. And so whether it's Peter Thiel or Dwight Gibson or whoever it is, when it comes to exploration, uh, I think we've got a secret sauce here, again, that's applicable to all of us. Mm -hmm. And there may be some different words to it, but I think this is the essence of of what it means for us to really explore and move forward uh, today.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I I do see so many cases where the existing approaches are not working. Yeah. And we need to think about, you know, how do we – how do we explore our way out of this place, this jam, you yeah. know, that we found ourselves in? So I may I mentioned that the kind of the, the startup, the Silicon Valley startup, Elon Musk going to Mars, colonize Mars. How he's going to get there, he doesn't know. Um, but he's like, well, I got to get a rocket. First thing I got to do is get there. So he said, yeah. he, he always says his view: solve the hardest technical problem first. He's like, yeah. transportation is the hardest problem. I'm going to solve that. But at least he knows Mars is there. He knows what it looks like. We know a heck of a lot about Mars. We get into the second part is we don't know where we're going. And, you know, you and I are both from the Midwest. You're from Michigan. I'm from Indiana. And the Midwest has been falling behind the country for 50, 60 years now. Since we went through this kind of deindustrialization phase, you know, nobody has really cracked a code on how you turn this region around. And you know, it seems like you, you know the Midwest needs to learn how to explore to find its way out of here. Um, yeah. So, so I, I'm curious your take on it because you've you've talked about it. Uh, I think your line was pragmatism killed Michigan, yeah. and and to me, pragmatism is the the antithesis of exploration. So, I, I'd be interested in you sharing a little some of the insights about that. Maybe let's apply exploration to the problems of the Midwest, and you know what's going on today, and what might a different approach look like.
1: You know, this is this is as you know, Aaron. This is this is an area that's close to my heart, and 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 frankly, it's one that deeply concerns me. Here's here's kind of my take at a, at a simple level, and I'm sure people could push back on this and 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 have. But here here's the reality that I found is that pragmatism grows very much out of an engineering mindset. I think, again, part of the strength of the industrial age was the mass production, was the scale up of organizations, cost went down, et cetera. And there was just all kinds of positives about it. The downside was, is it created a certain rigidity into the system, into the process. Years ago, I, I met a professor from University of Michigan um, Oh, his name just escapes me right now, but he he was he was a professor who did a lot of work looking at industrial companies and i was I met him at a conference in california, and afterwards i said i 'm from Michigan I said, "Is there hope from Michigan? Is there hope and he goes there 's great hope I said, "Oh really, help me understand that and, he, and his response was "Go up north and and anybody from Michigan knows you, you know you go up north, people have cottages up north, and that Up north is anywhere north of where you live (laughs) in Michigan. So, you know, it, it doesn't have to be the Upper Peninsula, but just northern where you live. And there's lakes and things, and that's where people go in the summer. And they have cottages. And he says, Dwight, go up north. I said, what do you mean? And he said, look at what people are doing at their cottages. At their cottages, they're creating things. They're doing things in their hands. And then he said this line. He says, the wisdom of the state of Michigan is in the hands of the people. The only problem is is the workplace, which is now highly regulated and regimented, doesn't allow the hands to be creative any longer in the workplace. People exchanged you know, 5, 10, 50, whatever number dollars per hour to do someone else's routine, but they are no longer allowed to be creative with their hands in the workplace. He says the reality is still there. So I went, I went to Northern Michigan I started looking around, and I realized he was right. All kinds of creative creativity outside of the workplace, but in the workplace, the industrial kind of the rigidity of the assembly line ended up has affected the way work gets done, the way that life gets done, and people end up putting things in nice boxes that are nice and. And uh, kind of smooth. Now, you end up having hostile workplaces. You end up having um, all kinds of things that are happening. But I would make the case that the real creativity, the freedom to kind of create things with the combination of the engineering thinking that is true, whether it's Cleveland, whether it's you know parts of Chicago, Detroit, so many other cities in the, this region that excelled in the industrial era. In the post-industrial era, a mindset has come in and a way of work that has come in it doesn't allow the freedom that's necessary. Um, uh, when it comes to exploration, I see kind of three categories of people. There's settlers, there's brokers, and explorers. All three are necessary. First, good organizations, good societies. I would make the case that settlers tend to push explorers out. Explorers mm-hmm. tend to get frustrated with settlers Brokers are just doing deals. You always find brokers wherever you go. But they even start doing hollow deals that don't really have value. They just do deals for deal's sake. And so when it comes to what we're talking about here, yeah, I think, I think uh, Midwest and I think a lot of parts of our country need to rediscover exploration and people need to recognize that they have agency. So much of what we see today is a denial that I have agency to do something. And so I, um, I have great hope michigan I, I i i mean i'm, I'm involved with a major uh, engagement right now in the chicago area i i love the midwest i even though i live here in new jersey uh i'm i'm a mid mess midwest person at heart and and i have great hope but i would actually have to say i'm probably one of the explorers who just didn't find a place and ended up going elsewhere and i think it's fascinating when you go to the silicon valleys of the world and here in the united states how many people you'll find from the midwest that were Kind of Moved out into that direction because there was Silicon Valley
0: there. was built by people from the Midwest, yeah, largely, well,
1: yeah. In the same way, it's interesting. I, you, you look at the you know mi- Michigan. The initial investments, for instance, in the eighteen hundreds were all from Boston and New York City. There were people from the East that invested in there. Uh, you know the the automobile companies, the DuPont family, and others. You know, the money that went in there and now those people ended up doing stuff out in Silicon Valley. And then their, their kids, you know, uh, are, are now the employees of those companies or f- even founders.
0: Yeah, I want to um, I mean, I, I, I can talk about the Midwest all day, but I know a lot of people here are very interested in, in talking about the Christian world. Yeah. And I really think the Christian world is in much like the political world is in a deeply uncertain time. You know, I mentioned, um, you know, the thing that resonated the most of anything I've written in my newsletters uh, is this idea of the positive, neutral, and negative world, that we went from kind of this pre-1994 era when the culture was positive towards Christianity, Uh, you know, it was, you know, Christian morals had a sort of normative force in society, even for those who weren't Christian, uh, to be known as an upstanding church-going man, you know, as, as, as a status enhancer, people want to hire you. Uh, and I just think about, like, this, the organization, Moral Majority. That uh, probably wasn't right even then, but at least you could plausibly pretend to represent a majority. Then I think you, you, you get into this era from, like, you know, 94 to 2014, where I called the neutral world. You know, Christianity is no longer the the the, 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 the norm. It's not necessarily a positive, but it's not a negative either. And that's what I call the cultural engagement era. I always use the example oh, you know, you're a Christian, I'm a vegan. Let's sit down and have a conversation. You know, we've each got our own little thing. You do you, they might say. And then after 2014, we've gotten into what I call the negative world, which is this idea that the world actually looks negatively on Christianity to be known as a highly religious person uh, is going to count against you in the higher status domains of society. Christian morality is explicitly repudiated and even viewed as, you know, in some uh, respects, undermining the new social order. And I've made this point over and over that, you know, we had this sort of call it the religious right strategy or, you know, a lot of the big parachurch organizations came out of that kind of, um, you know, the positive world era. You know, we had like another wave in the negative world era with a lot of the urban church movement and new Calvinism and new monastics and all that stuff. There's a bunch of new movements came along. But, in this negative world, there hasn't been much. You know again, I say Rod dreer uh, and his Benedict option idea, which got a lot of a lot of airplay, but not a lot of people really resonating with it. To be honest, he had a lot of pushback on that, was the only person talking about this, and now I feel like you know these organizations are realizing that they're you know they have to navigate through a future that's going to look different than it's ever been before. and I keep you know in, in terms of navigating this negative world. What I go back to is when the the Hebrews were about to enter the promised land. So you had this generation that had been in Egypt is all dead. So you've got a group of people who have never known anything except life in the desert, if you will. Now they're about to cross the Jordan River. And there's some line, I think it's in Joshua, where it says, you know, keep, keep 200 feet back, follow the ark, because you have not been this way before. You're going off into a place you've never been you've never been here so you got to like follow this arc as it goes all uh, along and, and you better like it because you don't know where you're going and i feel like that's where we are now we've had this comfortable environment you know such as it is and now we've moved into this place where, wow we've never been in this place before and just because other types of christians in other countries other to- eras have ex- had similar experiences you know the generational experiences of the people here in the united states has been very different and so we have to, this is where I think exploration is so critical to figuring out what to do do next. And a lot of people are not really doing it. Uh, But what I want to ask you about, uh, that's kind of the the preamble to asking you about this engagement you're working on right now. Um, So I'm going to ask you about some of your, your clients maybe I know about. And I don't know if you have like, you know, as you know, I know you don't like the word consultant, but I'm a consultant. So that's how I think about the word. As you know, when you're a consultant, you can't just talk about your clients without permission. So, feel free to like shut me down on anything because sometimes i know things that maybe maybe we shouldn't discuss live but you're doing um you know you're doing some work for trinity international university in yeah. uh, north chicago i think most people watching this probably know that through trinity evangelical divinity school which is very well known very well respected they're trying to navigate this they've had COVID hit. we had a lot bearing down on universities what's going on there and how did you get engaged with them and, and <laughs> what's, what's what's going on in that
1: and uh, yeah, uh, Trinity International University is is a great great university, and I, I'm excited to be uh, a part of the team there with uh, the president uh, Nick Perrin and, and a number of others. Yeah, it's you know part of the exploration gear. Um, uh, 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 Aaron is um, is is uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's being open. You know, it's being open. And, and uh, in in 2019, I was in a an, a small engagement with with one of the centers at the school, helping them sort some things out. And one thing led to another, and I meet the president of the school uh, February of 2020, uh, pre-COVID, in the pre-COVID world. And uh, then um, we're talking, and he says, "I love I love what you're talking about," because I was making some a presentation of some things that I thought he needed to do as president on behalf of this center that I was doing some work with, and. And I still remember him saying, this is really interesting. I want to talk to you Mark. When can we talk? Can we talk soon? Can we talk soon? And I said, yeah, I looked at my calendar. I said, tell you what, I, next week you got your spring break. Why don't I come back next week? He goes, yeah, done. Let's do it. So I flew back to Chicago a week later and met with the now good friend, Nick Perrin, the president of the university. And, and we talk some more, and we spend the whole day talking about exploration, and he's talking about the school and what they're thinking and where they're going and the possibilities for the future. But he's also talking about, i got some things we got to sort out, higher education, Christian higher education. we got a lot to figure out right now. The business model's changed, uh, kind of this cliff of demo, uh, demographics, the less number of kids, just the number of things at play. And he says, i got to figure out the way forward. And we end the day by saying, this is interesting. Let's talk some more and let me think. And I said, yeah, let me think about this. I I think there may be something here. To cut to the chase, over the three days later, COVID hits and the country closes down. You know, that that plane uh, was until just recently was the last full plane that I'd flown on for, you know, numbers of months or for many of us didn't fly anywhere at all. But anyway, we start talking, and one thing leads to another. And not only does he invite me to do an exploration um, at Trinity because of some personnel changes, he actually invites me to join the staff. And I got to tell you, I'm going to say Garrett. One of my colleagues is Garrett, and so for some reason I'm wanting to say his name right now. But you know, Aaron, I um, when he invited me to join the staff of the school, you could have knocked me over with a you know a feather. It was out of nowhere, nothing I expected, but I knew exactly that that was something I needed to do. And so I stepped into it. I'm the the interim vice president for advancement at Trinity. And over this last year, I have led an amazing team. I've been working from an exploration standpoint, helping Trinity navigate what it means to go forward in these days, COVID days, but also where we are in the world today and looking forward. And and this exploration has been exhilarating and been amazing because higher education is at a point of change. Uh, Trinity is at a point of change. Uh, Christian organizations all over the world are at a point of change. What does it mean to do that? What does it mean to, to live into that? And as we're walking together, I'm recognizing that this is not overnight. You know, people say, oh, this is great. Let's get this thing fixed in a week. Let's get this change happening in a day. And just this morning, I was thinking about Eugene Peterson and, the, and the, the phrase, a long obedience, you know, in the same direction. That's a great phrase. We all love that phrase. We all want to do that until, you know, until you're Lewis and Clark and it's a rainy night in North Dakota and you've already been out on the trail for 60 days and you you hurt and your horse is sick and you're sick and you miss home. And, and so all that to say, I've entered a longer term ed. Exploration with Trinity, and I think it's going to go to great some great things, and we're seeing good things happen. But you know what? It's taking work, and I think in these days we have to be willing to lean into the hard work. and And for organizations um, that were we're stuck in a certain way. Yesterday, uh, you, you may know Aaron. I, I like uh, I like old postcards, and I and I bought an old postcard online yesterday, and it was from about 120 years ago. And it's a it's a um, it's a postcard of an old trolley. And on the trolley, it says Salvation Army First Outing. And it's a bunch of people on this trolley car heading to an outing somewhere. And I bought the card basically as a reminder to say the way we used to do things is not necessarily the way we're going to do them going forward. In 1909, whatever they were doing, that was the right strategy and that was a good strategy. That's not the strategy today. I was reading a piece, and the, 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 I'm, I'm connected with a camp in Michigan, Simpson Park Camp near north of Detroit in Romeo, Michigan. Like the oldest church in town is closing down, putting their building up for sale, and reorganizing. And it's like this historic building on the main street of town. The way we used to do things, it may need to look different today. And so long answer to your short question about Trinity. I'm excited to be a part of this great university. We're trying to navigate the way forward. The president has asked me to be a part of that, that great team of vice presidents, staff, faculty. And um, I think we're gonna see great things as we go forward, but it's, you, you gotta explore, you gotta be open to change. You gotta know, and actually here's the other thing is like, you gotta know what you need to hold on to. Change is not just about g- getting rid of everything. It's knowing why are we here what are the truths? In our case, biblical orthodoxy is very critical. This is a school that's about biblical orthodoxy. Um, You know, people uh, raise questions here and there, but at the core, we are about biblical orthodoxy. The president has said, when it comes to our priorities, we want to be mentoring in hope, worshiping in faithfulness, and building bridges in love. And we are committed to the scripture, that the basis for that, all of that grows out of scripture. And and I think, so today, you know, what's the, the question? What does it mean to live as Daniels in a world of exile today? You know, we talk about, you know, didn't inhale. Mm -hmm. Daniel never inhaled. He was (laughs) true Yahweh in the land that was great difficulty. I think another great question today, what does it mean to pass on our faith to the next generation? Parents are asking that. Grandparents are asking that. What does it mean for living faith to live in this world today? And so, man, I'm excited to be about Trinity because we're asking hard questions and we're leaning into it. And moving forward wisely, so it's it's a it's a wonderful exploration, and I'm thrilled to be a part of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, a lot of these organizations do need to reinvent themselves, and there are a lot of fundamental questions around. You know, again, the financial model—it's like oh, biblical orthodoxy versus taxpayer support. Uh, there's the uh, you know the demographic cliff. You know, the people are you know the student loan debt crisis. There's you know the the shrinking numbers of Christians, and like you know people questioning maybe you know, the value proposition of that. There's, there's so much to navigate through. And I think it is one where, like, if you could create a very simple strategy, oh, here's what we're going to do, you um, wouldn't be an expiration. <laughs> You're just like, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to just, I'm going to bring this. And it's going to be like a private equity restructuring. We're going to buy this thing out. We're going to sell this off, these assets. We're going to monetize this, do a layoff, do this and that. And then, you know, we're gold. But I think there are these things that are just, we just don't know. Uh, where we're going. And it's just like with the startups, right? There's always these these pivots. There's like the the mythological pivot where I I, I relate that somehow to the orienteering and the landmarking and like, okay, now we've, now we've learned some things and this direction we're going ain't going to work. We got to go over here.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and uh, and to take that another step further, we've been conditioned that we want that to happen in a day or a week or a month. Look through the stories of, of scripture, children of Israel, 40 years in the wilderness, while things changed. Moses, 40 years of preparation. Joseph, 20 years of preparation. Jesus, 30 years of preparation. And you look at this, this was not like, read this book and you're ready to go, or do this online class and you're ready to go, you'll have all the answers. Again, one of the things, one of the things, and I, I've, I've heard this from alumni at Trinity, they said, you can go to a lot of schools, that will give you the answers. There's not too many schools that'll help you understand what the questions are you should be asking. Mm-hmm. And and I think today we've got this kind of prescriptive. Give me a simple pill and make it all good. And you know what? I you know, my wife and I've been married for all oh, thirty seven years. And you know, some days it takes a lot of work. I love my wife. She's an amazing wife. But you know what? It's thirty years, th- thirty seven years of learning how to love my wife. Thirty seven years of her loving how to learning how to love me. And we're walking together. And it sometimes just takes time. And uh, it's not. It's. It, it's always good. It's kind of like Aslam, you know, is it, is, is, is he good? Yes. But it's, it's not always easy. It's a little dangerous.
0: Yeah. I, I think there's this, um, you know, I, I think this mentality that we have, um, where we, we want to feel like we've got the plan to get there. We got to know the road. So discourages people from taking the steps that they need to do. I mean, again, in the Midwest, there's all this talk about, you know, the cat there's not a lot of high risk capital here you don't go to the venture capitalist and walk away with a check for a million bucks because they think your pitch deck is pretty good you know these are probably the people who still want the traditional business plan with all the pro forma financial statements and all this stuff and and so you end up not doing it and i see that when people are really willing to take not a foolish step you know because these explorers prepared for what they were doing Yes. But take a step into an unknown situation, you know, could, the results can be, um, you know, pretty, pretty amazing. I think a lot of church planting falls into that. That's the one thing that, that seems to be, you know, and I think, I guess there are a lot of methodologies for church planting. Now, there are a lot of formulas, okay? So, uh, you know, I not want to say it's not yeah. formula-driven, but I think about Tim Keller starting Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. It's like, hey, you want to go start a church in New York? Well, you know, a bunch of people turned it down. It's like, how's this going to work? You know, we tried, they tried yeah. once before, the denomination tried once before, it didn't work. They learned some things. They, they did it differently the next time. For example, they, they allocated a lot more money yeah. uh, the second time around. But then he came there and he's got to get, got to get the lay of the land. He's got to figure out how to navigate and look for, you know, look for opportunities. And, and you do it if you, if you hadn't taken the first step. If, you'd, if you had to have the plan for what you're going to, oh, well, I'm going to have this, this, this. You'd never start it. Um, right. you know, I think about uh, you know the church I attended in New York was a church that had um, it uh, had a building that was fa- a landmark building, but it was falling apart. Uh, you know needed uh, you know you know needed twenty million dollars in repairs. So There's a building that needs twenty million dollars in repair. It's covered in scaffolding, uh, has no no endowments. It's down to like fifteen to thirty people in this church. Uh, theologically, it's uh, you know there's no there's no theology there. the the the, uh, the uh, pastor of that church doesn't believe Jesus is the Son of God and uh, or anything like that. He's a Unitarian at best. He was described to me as. And so people came in there and just said, you know what? We think that this church is not dead yet. That we shouldn't give up on this. And so they just came in, and over the course of ten years well, probably more than 10 years now. This was probably in like 2007. Mm. They, you know, they sort of repopulate the church, figure out how to bring in a new pastor. They have to, you know, I mean, there's like one kind of disaster after the next. They have to get out of the denomination because they got a lot of problems with the denomination. And that took years of Wrangles. You know, and then they had to just slowly build all the stuff up. Then they had to do, like, a massive fundraising campaign, all this stuff. But then all of a sudden, wait a minute, now there is a, you know, you fast forward 13 years later, now there is a vibrant, you know, gospel-believing church at 64th and Park Avenue in Manhattan in this incredible, you know, John D. Rockefeller paid-for building. Now it's renovated. It's like if people hadn't said, you know, I'm not going to do that, I'm just not going to do that, you know, nothing none that would happen you have to have some people who are crazy well you,
1: you, know, really, you got to have
0: some people you got to have some people who are kind of crazy to even
1: do this Well, you're exactly right and this is where you know, you're, t- you're asking the pragmatism question you know very few pragmatists are crazy but you need a you need a few crazy people that my son my oldest son a number of years ago we were talking about something and i said yeah you know, about being a father and how i've done as a father and he says dad he said let me be honest with you mom and i are very practical yeah. If it wasn't for you, we would have had a lot less fun in our family <laughs> you know, because, you know, they're, they're very practical. Let's kind of be very careful. And stuff.
0: Said, Dad, you oh, yeah, you're um, you're kind of hitting something that's causing a little noise. Yeah, there.
1: Yeah. And he said he said, you're 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 doing, um, you know, Dad, you brought the craziness into the family that made things fun, you know, and interesting. And I think that's where when you talk about in order to to be an explorer at times, you do have to be a little crazy because you're stepping into the impossible. And in otherwise, you're just going to kind of tweak your way along or incrementally get away your long. And and the, the explorers of the world are the ones that say, you know what, we're going to we're going to take the time and we're going to do this church uh, in, in New York City. We're, it's a Tim Keller. So, you know what, we're going to start a new church in New York City. It's an Elon Musk saying, you know, what, we're going to figure out how to get to Mars. Um, it's it's the crazy ideas. We, for instance, this last year at Trinity, we set some. So the area that I've been involved in is advancement. And And, and hear me on this. We're not, you know. But we need funds, and we need our donors, and we need our students. But we set some ambitious goals last year, and I thank God there was great provision for the school. But I, early on, I said, I think this is what we need to set as a goal. And somebody said, I said, what do you think? And they said, you're, you're crazy. That's what I think. I said, okay, but I think that's what we need to do. And not only did we hit that goal, we exceeded it drastically. But if we had just in the incremental pragmatic thing, we would have never got there.
0: Yeah, I think there's, there's so much of this so much as I think about, you know, there's, you know, I look at like what, uh, you know, what uh, uh, Jim and Doug Wilson did out in Moscow, Idaho, again, they're not everybody's cup of tea, but Jim Wilson's like, well, I guess I better pack up my van with books. I'm going to go out to this place I picked off a map and start something. And you just don't, I mean, again, you know, in the Midwest, you just don't see these crazy ideas. Yeah. You know, you don't see, I mean, crazy is the wrong word. Um, But you don't see people willing to take a step you know, into the unknown, into a high risk situation. You know, some of the explorers died, right? Yeah. And say, you know, because it's like you know, if you if it's like it's like there's like a, a lack of faith or something there. And, and, and I, I, don't wanna, I don't make it too theological, but it's like there's such a, a play it safe. It's like I can't get out of my comfort zone. Yeah. I can't get out of what I've always known uh, because if I you know, and and that's why these places like Silicon Valley where, you know, insane ideas are like, oh yeah, I'll give you some money to try that. What's the worst that happens, right? Yeah, but
1: but I, would, I would push back though, in the, here's where I would push back. It's not that the Midwest doesn't have the potential and it's not that somehow Silicon Valley has all the potential, because if you look back in the 18, early 1800s, for instance, the Midwest was the place where you went. It was the place of opportunity. Ohio, the Western Reserve, Michigan. There's a, there's a great line. The motto, if you can believe this, Aaron, the motto of Detroit in the early part of the 19th, 1900s, not the 19th 1900s, is the city where life is worth living. That was the motto of Detroit. My, Detroit was the magnet where you went because there were so many opportunities there. The case that I would make is that with the industrial, kind of the industrial uh, revolution and its full ascendancy, what it did is it taught or trained the people out of that creativity, and I think that's what Silicon Valley hasn't done at least yet. And so the question is, what can it? What does it look like in this kind of this very practical, very engineering kind of thing? Is it possible for there to be people who think creatively or to be taught to think creatively or to recognize um, that, that there's more than just kind of the engineer? And I, and I, and I say this not in, an, in a negative sense, but I don't mean it fully negatively. In an engineering sense is that I have to control. I have to know. It has to be standard. It has to be you know, replicatable. Can we actually help people see there are bigger possibilities than, than what you're seeing right now? And in a sense to take the good of that world and step into a new place that's actually very creative
0: yeah well i uh, i treat the masculinist as an exploration uh you know i don't know exactly where it's going to go i don't know where it's going i don't know exactly how i'm going to get there yeah um, but you know a lot of the things that have been the biggest uh, again the biggest supports to me in, in in building it have been things i didn't even know existed And I keep bringing up, you know, I bring up that, you know, Rod Dreer, somebody sent Rod Dreer my newsletter and he wrote about it. And then I got invited here. I got invited. So things start happening. And but if I hadn't taken the first step, if I said, well, who's going to promote it? Uh, Well, nobody will promote it. So I guess I better just uh, you don't have any connections. I do think there's something there. And and we are in this unprecedented world for Christianity. And I don't think that everybody, as you said, not everybody's an explorer. You know, yeah. but when you be- we become overly dominated by, I don't know if they were settlers, We call them settlers. Maybe they're not all settlers. Maybe they were explorers. Tim Keller was an explorer thirty-five years ago. I would say he's not an explorer today because yeah. he 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 figured it out. He built this thing, and now he's kind of got he's kind of got that. You know, a lot of the baby boomer generation, they were explorers. You know, in a and and earlier, but now we have sort of a boomer dominated, and you're a baby boomer, so I can say this, you know, we have an overly boomer dominated culture where, you know, the the people who are kind of running the show just doing more and more of what they already know how to do, and they're not necessarily adaptable. So this is, I think this idea of exploration, it's a skill we need to fit into so many things that we're doing. And um, I I got a question here. Um, Does this, is this right? Uh, no, that's the wrong question because I already answered that question. Here's for you. How could we make the case from Kevin? How could we make the case that we need to explore now even more than before we had all the world's information at our fingertips? So we have all the world's, you know, we have all the world's information at our fingertips. We have all these experts. Trust the experts, I always say. How do we make the case for exploration to people? Because it is a little bit when you don't really know what, you know, where you're going sometimes. The idea of like, well, let's get in these ships and start sailing off into that sea. Like, wow, how do you make the case that we need that, that we need to have a, more of a mindset of this, uh, or at least add this tool to our tool chest?
1: Yeah, this. Thank you, Kevin. This is a great question, and I and I think it is it is a it is a very real question in the world today. And so here's one of the things that I would say. First of all, um, information is not finite. Uh, information is actually infinite. And I would actually make the case that the, the opportunities uh, for knowledge are infinite. We, we have not arrived. As I look through history, kind of each generation has thought they have arrived. And if, if you remember, there's kind of this famous story. And I, I can't remember what year it was, but the patent office was thinking about closing down because everything had been discovered. And this was like 80, 90 years ago. And I think at each season of our lives, we think we have so much information and that there's nothing else to find. I was speaking, uh, I, I did a kind of a keynote uh, presentation at the conference a, a number of years ago, and in the midst as I was speaking, I said, there is, there is opportunities all around us. And if, if we really believe that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and that God has given us everything we need. And I was, I was kind of giving this illustration in my presentation. I said, is it possible? And I, I pointed right, right next to, you know, as often you have when you're speaking, there was this plant, like this kind of palm leafy thing next to the, where I was speaking at the podium. And I said, is it possible that God is looking at us and saying, don't you see it? I gave you this and I pointed to the palm tree. This is the cure for cancer. Why has no one figured it out yet? Mm -hmm. And I think that as we look around, whether it's the power of the sun for energy, whether it's various plants that can be used for medicine when it comes to various food, I think Kevin is right. There is lots of information around us, and we can become overwhelmed by that and saying, I have everything that I need and know. But the reality is there are problems that are not solved. There are opportunities to live, if you will, better or in in, a, in in ways that are kind of more flourishing. I love the word flourishing. There are things that can come to us that help us live a more flourishing life than we have right now. And so we can look at the, you know, I got my glass here. You can look at the glass half full or you can look at the glass half empty. And if I want to look at the world as half full, the glass is half full or the world is half full, you know what? I'm going to, you know, have one perspective. But if I say it's half empty, I'm going to have another. And so I think that the real challenge is to help people say there are still things to be discovered, continue to dream, continue to look, continue to wonder. I think the other thing that I would say, Kevin, is um, is do we knowing what to turn on and what to turn off. One of the things uh, that I have and there's been multiple people that I've heard talk about this. There's a, there a book by a guy named Cal Newport recently on, um, yeah. You remember, I, I have lots of books, but I don't always remember the names. Cal, He's, a, he's at Georgetown University. It's like essential minimalism or something like mm. that. And for me was this recognition that at times social media, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or all this stuff, it's just massive distraction. And I've really taken a step back on my digital footprint because I realized it was occupying my time, but it wasn't really helping me to think. And so while there may be, it, it, there's, there's a difference between information and noise. And I would actually say the world is noisier than ever, but they're not necessarily more information at times, but there is more noise. When I... When I kind of interesting Aaron. and as you know i live outside of philadelphia here you've been to our bank many times and then this guy I lives put,
0: in a bank by the way he bought yeah. an old bank and it's now his house
1: yeah i know it doesn't it,
0: get much cooler than that
1: No, i guess i you know I, we lived for years the bank owned me now i own the bank Aaron. and <laughs> uh but anyway you know i i spend time in, uh, yeah <laughs> i live I, I live here you know in new jersey outside of philadelphia then i spend time in chicago my life in Chicago is fundamentally different than my life in New Jersey right now. And, and I made some specific choices, Aaron. When I go to Chicago, I never listen to the news. I never listen. I never read a newspaper. I don't listen to the news. I don't watch TV or anything. I, you know, Chicago, I listen to WFMT, the classical music station. I listen to that. I do my work at Trinity and I do odd jobs for my, my I, I, I stay at the house where my, my, my wife grew up. I stay there. I, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law live there. I do odd jobs to help around the yard. And I go running in the morning. And last summer, in the midst of the world falling apart, I started thinking. And I said, you know what? My life is pretty good. And I realized what was happening while I was in Chicago. I wasn't hiss- listening to all the noise. <laughs> I was doing my work. I was living, I was eating, I was flourishing in, in a difficult time. Now, I'm, I'm not saying there was lots of difficulty all around me, and I recognize that. My point is I turned down the noise, and in the porous, and when I turned down the noise, kind of like my life kind of got turned up, and it was a really healthy change.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of Nassim Taleb's uh, ideas is um... – you know stop reading the news i mean the news my wife actually started this um thing that she does you know we get the sunday new york times print edition she reads it a week late so she reads them a week and she just goes through and it's like and that way i don't read i read the interesting features and stuff it's amazing how much more pleasant experience it is when you're not just reading the noise of the daily fray
1: yep.
0: uh that are there but i think that's a lot of it. they want us on social media and i'm a social media guy so i get you know i can't complain they they want us uh you know uh, consuming entertainment they want us paying attention to the fray not you know to what's important to us and um this this information overload um so i think w- maybe we can uh we can go ahead and wrap up here is, is there anything else you just want to you know say on the topic give you the opportunity to, to to close out we're not we don't have we're not pressed for time but i, I don't want to just uh you know extend just to extend
1: yeah, you know, I think there's there's a couple of things that kind of come to my mind. One is, and I'll come back to this we said earlier. One is that we're all we all have the opportunity to explore. We don't have to be trapped. It's not a finite world. I think there's broad opportunities. You know, I, I've worked with a lot of interesting clients over time, and everyone came to me with an idea. The kind of like you know, there's something like this that we're trying to figure out, and we help them, if you will, land that plane and figure out the way forward. And so one, exploration is available and open to all of us. I think the other thing that I would say is that this is an opportune time. And I think what, what Kevin was, his, this last question here, this is an opportune time for exploration. And, and coming out of a pandemic like this, um, habits have been changed, practices have been changed. Uh, we're actually having to ask the question, why, once again? Why is this here? In, 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 why do I go to church? Why am I involved in this? Where am I spending my time? All the why kind of questions. This is a time for opportune exploration. This is a time for, in a sense, people to really say what's important. And I think exploration is a way to do it. There's, you know, there's, a, there's some work that I've done on the seasons of exploration. And I think this is a, this is a startup time. Uh, and it may not feel like a startup time, um, but we have a lot of kind of brownfield around us where there's things that have been built that are falling apart. We're in a greenfield time where we have an opportunity to create new things. I think exploration is really, really viable for that. Um, And so I think- I think
0: it was uh, Mark Andreessen, uh, the guy who invented Netscape, now he's a Silicon Valley uh, uh, venture capitalist. He he called it a time to build.
1: Yes, yeah, it's totally, it is a time to build. And that's where I say, I'm actually curious to see over the next 12 to 24 months, the new ideas that you and I cannot even imagine or conceive of, That if people have been home tinkering in their basements, thinking, dreaming, doing some stuff uh, that has been kind of outside of the public eye, I'm curious to see what emerges in our world that we never could have imagined today. That is actually going to be critical. And and you know, say if you were to say to me, Dwight, what are the critical things that you don't have right now that you really need? You know, I can't I can't think about. I don't know what that might be, to be honest. But I have a hunch. That twenty-four months from now, there's something gonna be birthed or launched that you and I are gonna say, say five years from now, how did we ever live without it? And it was something that was launched out of this pandemic. And so that's why I say, your church, your organization, your family, your business, this is an opportune time to build. I think, I think it's the world is ripe for it. And let's see where it all goes.
0: Well, Dwight, thank you very much. I really appreciate you uh, joining. I know you're very busy with Trinity and elsewhere and uh, traveling back between cities. I, I always find it very enjoyable. And hopefully, you know, people, you know, this helps people to start thinking about like, how do I maybe rethink or explore, you know, this future, this unknown, highly uncertain future that we all find ourselves now suddenly facing. It was always that way, but previously we had this illusion Uh, but, uh, be interested, be interested in that. So again, thank you for joining. I appreciate it.
1: Hey, great to be with you, Aaron. Anytime.